Father in heaven, we thank you that you've let us once again have an opportunity to come, sit down, learn, open our Bibles. We are thankful that we have Bibles, that we have multiple copies. We can go to the store and buy more if we want, that we have the freedom to congregate and to be able to discuss things. Lord, we do know we live in a a day and age in which those freedoms do seem to be dwindling. But for now, Father, we do give you thanks that we are able to worship, that we are able to study, that we're able to learn. We pray that we would not take those things for granted, that we would uh, uh, enjoy and revel in the time that we have together to be able to study and to learn more about you. And we pray, Lord, as we continue our study of the catechism, that we would uh, continue to see what a wonderful tool this is for our growth, not just in knowledge, but our growth in character. We pray all these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are going to continue after a little bit of a hiatus um, to deal with some things that I thought needed to be dealt with. We're going to continue with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. So hopefully you have that in your uh, either personal pocket copy, which I know everybody keeps and, and studies there. See? <clears throat> Always a gold star. I, had, I know who my... <laughs> You remember that, right? The wall with all the names and there was that one kid who had just stars everywhere. His name was Matt. <laughs> all right, so but if you'll grab your, your, either your personal copy or again about page 870-something uh, in the uh, Trinity Hymnal, 879 I think some of you all have said. Uh, around that we're going to be looking at question number 12. And I don't have my dry erase board here. So we'll see what we can do without it. Um, But uh, uh, question number 12. And let me see if I can get one of our... All right, so as we uh, look at this question, let me just go back a step and to say that what we've been doing is we're beginning to look at who God is. Remember the the Bible, that one of the questions is what does the Scriptures principally teach? And the, the Scriptures principally teach. Anybody remember? What man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. So it breaks up into this two-part. Talking about, you know, who God is, what he's done for us, how we respond, what it is that God expects of us. We're in the middle of the, the who God is part. And we've looked at God's eternal decree, the fact that God decrees all things. There is nothing outside of his sovereign control in the universe, and we've already seen that. And we've seen that his decree breaks up into two major Areas. You remember where those two areas are? Creation and providence. Right. So we've got creation and providence. Okay, let's. Thank you, little man. You got it. So creation, God made all things. Providence, God superintends them. God is the one who maintains that creation. And what we have seen, this is very important, I think, for all our purposes. These questions build one upon the other. It's important to recognize that God in his sovereignty is at work with a purpose and a plan. It's not just that he sees something, oh, that person's falling, got to catch it. Oh, that, you know. No, everything is moving forward with a plan. So we've established those general principles that God decrees everything, that he is sovereign over all things that he both creates and now is actively superintending the creation. Now, finally, the catechism begins to sit there and talking about what God has revealed is that plan, at least the the broad brushstrokes, the major parts of it. 
So that brings us to question number 12. So if somebody will read question 12 and the answer that goes along with it. All right, thank you so much, David. So now we're getting into the specifics. What is it that God has ordained? What is it that God is doing in the world? And it starts right from the very beginning with that first covenant that God made with Adam. And there's a lot here that we're going to try to just cover uh, the waterfront. And of course, as always, we won't be able to dig in as deeply as we would like, but we do want to cover some things. As usual, the, the phrases, the clauses in the question uh, are, are very instructive. And um, while we today might think that the use of commas is excessive, uh, the way they wrote back then, what it does is it highlights every individual clause and they stand out. So he's acting, he's, he's asking, or they're asking, okay, God is acting in providence, but was there a special act of providence that God had towards man? And then when it says in the estate, in the estate we might consider, we might say today state without the E, perhaps the condition, you know, uh, uh, in which we find ourselves. So, uh, you know, what, what did God do for man in that condition where he was created, in that state in which he was created? Well, when God had created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him. So we want to talk about that covenant. It tells us that that covenant was upon condition of perfect obedience, simply saying man was expected to perfectly obey, forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So he had given him that one condition, that was the condition that he gave him, uh, that he expected him to obey. And it says upon the pain of death, just an old way of saying uh, that, that was the penalty, upon the penalty, we might say today, the penalty of death. So... There's the question. I'm going to suspect that most of you are familiar with the story in Genesis chapter 2, so we won't read all of that again. That then flows into Genesis chapter 3, where man disobeys. But what I want to focus on today is the covenant itself and talk a little bit about that, because covenants become the structuring foundation for God's acts of providence and redemption all throughout the rest of the Bible. So starting right there in chapter 2, where it tells us, that God entered into that covenant with man uh, around um, Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So we want to be able to understand what a covenant is. How does it apply? What does that have to do with, the, when we talk about the old covenant, the new covenant, the covenant of grace? What is it that we're looking at? And we're going to try to deal with all that. So let's start by just looking at what is a covenant itself. Now, the word covenant is not one we use a whole lot. Probably the only place that I see it, and maybe you can give me some other examples if I've missed it, but about the only place I ever see it now is in housing contracts or something like that. And you'll hear people talking about a covenant that's being made. Uh, I'm not sure why they pick that word over and against contract or something of that nature. But uh, the, the reason that's not a good use biblically is because in those covenants, uh, you know, you talk about home, homeowners association covenants or whatever, those are all agreements that you enter into voluntarily. Those are all agreements between equals. And that is not at all the language that is used in Scripture. When we took a look at covenants as a whole, this was not language that was unfamiliar with people in the ancient Near Eastern world. In the ancient Near Eastern world, covenants were very, very um, 
common or frequent. It was part of uh, the life politically, socially, and culturally. So, for example, um, when you had a major nation state, Egypt, major world player at the time, a little later, Assyria, Babylon, and so on. When you had any one of those, they would exercise control over nations around them. They might come up against a nation, conquer it, or, or, or be on the verge of conquering it, and basically bring it under their, their influence. And uh, uh, we do the same thing today. Uh, we don't use the words of, of in the old days. In the old days, you had a sovereign and you had a vassal, right? Vassal, V-A-S-S-A-L. You're all familiar with that term because uh, that continued to be used through the medieval era. But yeah, you had a sovereign. You had a vassal state. Today, we just simply call them client states. You've heard that, that term used. You know, the Soviet Union had a number of client states. China has this client state, that kind of thing. So the, the concept, even today, still applies. So a sovereign nation would, would either take over a particular uh, neighboring nation, put a puppet king in place, or threaten him to take over and basically cow them into submission and establish a covenant with them. And this won't be the time in which we get too deep into it, but there was always a pattern. Uh, it would be something like the, the sovereign nation lays out the stipulations. This is what our relationship is going to be like. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back once a year and you're going to have X amount of grain and X amount of gold or you know, whatever it is that they do in that nation. Uh, lumber, and you're going to have that and you're going to give that to me as tribute. And if you don't give it to me, I will uh, invade, destroy, you know, sack your cities, that kind of thing. And if you do, I promise you protection. You know, uh, Syria, I'm going to promise you protection against Egypt, that kind of thing. Once you understand that, you begin to see why uh, by the time we get much later into the life of Israel, uh, when they have the kings and so on, that you see them saying, well, maybe I need to go and ask, for e- to ask Egypt for protection against Babylon, because Babylon seems to be, or Assyria, or you know, whichever one that it happened to be threatened by, seems to be the growing state. And then the prophets will come forward and say, don't trust in any of them, just turn to God, and so on. It was commonplace. Uh, sometimes we even seek out and put yourself under the vassalage of uh, of, a, of a major world power in order to find protection and that kind of thing. So this is a, a concept that was very common uh, in the ancient Near Eastern world and not just, again, for, for uh, international relations, but just in the way that people uh, dealt one with another. Now, there's a whole lot more that we could say there. I'm just going to leave that there for now. But if you look at a book like Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is actually written with the form, the legal form of a covenant treaty of the time the time that would have been uh, done around 1400 BC, uh, uh, 1400 BC. So it actually has, just like if today, you know, you look at a contract and it starts with stipulations and whereas and all this, and you recognize that's a contract or this is a will or something, they would have recognized the book of Deuteronomy for being just that. So yeah, you lay out the stipulations and then you lay out what are known as the curses and blessings. And those two things are, if you obey, this is, In other words, if you keep the stipulations of the covenant, these are the benefits, the blessings that will accrue to you. If you do not keep the conditions of the covenant, the stipulations, then these are the curses, these are the the negative things that will, the penalties that will accrue to you. And again, you see that in the book of Deuteronomy. We see that in ancient Near Eastern documents that we have found, uh, you know, in cuneiform and papyri and all that other stuff. So it's a very, very common form, and it's exactly what we see right here. 
in Genesis chapter 2, God enters into a covenant with Adam, with man. And he lays out stipulations, right? What does he say? You are to till the garden. You are to, uh, you know, be my, my um, vizier. Essentially, you are the one who stands in my place. You are to uh, go forth into, into the world. Uh, you are to subdue it. You are to multiply. The, you know, you're to do all those different things. You are to enjoy. I've given you everything to enjoy. Uh, so you've got to do that. One thing I don't want you to do, I don't want you to eat of this particular tree. That's it. What happens if you do all those things? And the promise is one of what? What do we get in Genesis? The promise of what? And, and that blessing is? Say again. Life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you promised eternal life. And if you don't do that, if you disobey what I'm doing, uh, what I'm saying, the promise is one of death. Yeah, there we go. So what we have here then um, is, a, is a very, very typical covenant like you see everywhere throughout Scripture. But it helps us to understand that that's what a covenant is. It's not just two guys shaking hands on a deal in which you bargain. Adam did not bargain with God to arrive at, you know, how God was going to govern the universe and govern mankind as well. Uh, God creates and immediately sets the terms for the relationship that he's made between man and God. Uh, and again, man is not just the, you know, the most advanced animal, that kind of thing. Man is the crown of creation. Man is, uh, in fact, in today's sermon today, as we talk about um, uh, we're going to look at creation, as a matter of fact, as part of today's sermon. I'm going to point out that, you know, God created both the physical and the spiritual universe. Uh, or the universe is both composed of physical and spiritual elements. He, God created both of them. When you look at the, the creation, you, and you talk about physics and, and, and chemistry and biology, those are physical aspects of our, our creation. Every animal, that is, every plant that has been made, every rock, every animal is... Purely physical. I'm sorry to tell you that. You know, you got your favorite dog and all that other stuff. Your dogs, you know, their souls are not waiting for you in heaven. I'm just uh, going to break it to you this way. But now, hang on. I'll, I'll offer you a little bit of comfort. In in the new heavens and the new earth, when God recreates all things, there will be animals there as well, and uh, and and. All those animals, again, will be physical animals, but they don't have a spiritual component uh, to them. Uh, then you have uh, beings that are purely spiritual, right? You have the angels who were created as God's uh, uh, servants, purely spiritual. Only mankind has both spiritual and physical because only mankind is made in the image of God. We'll talk more about that later. That's a very, very important concept that, it sets, a, sets everything, all the arguments that you hear today about things that are going on in culture and, and uh, you know, Canada is telling people that if they have a problem, they can call a hotline, and you guys have heard this, right? Not that this is surprising, since the 1980s, we've been on this path. But, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm, things are really tough right now, and uh, I'm a veteran, and, you know, got my leg shot off in Iraq, and now I'm wrestling with this. Well, have you tried killing yourself? Yeah. Why do we say things like that? Because... Uh, we devalue life. We devalue life because we don't understand the importance of being made in the image of God. Man alone reflects God. And we, one of the ways in, we, in which we reflect him is we alone in all of creation are both physical and 
spiritual creatures. And that's a very, very important point that we want to make here. But God enters into a relationship with the crown of creation, with man. But it's not a mutual relationship. There is always the creator-creature distinction. And God lets them know these are the terms and sets that in place. So um, let, let's just kind of uh, start with that and, um, and see if you have any questions so far on what we're talking about with a covenant, the general structure of how covenants work. And, uh, and then we're going to dissect this one a little bit. Uh, are we clear so far? Everything good? Questions? Comments? No? Okay. Let's press on a little bit and then talk about what really makes this covenant so important. And again, folks, um, just in case, in case you arrived a little later, uh, we're doing the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, you'll find that on uh, in your Trinity hymnal in the back. We're doing question and answer number 12. Uh, question and answer number 12. Okay. So the covenant is called here a covenant of life. And the reason that it's called a covenant of life is because the, uh, uh, the, the condi- not the conditions, but the uh, blessing, the, uh, the benefit of obedience, perfect obedience, mind you, is eternal life. Now that tells us something. It tells us that Adam uh, had to have fulfilled these conditions to be able to go on and live in a blessed state. You know, for, when we talk about eternal life, we're talking about he would have been confirmed in his holiness he would never have sinned, and so on. If that sounds like what's going to happen in the new heavens and the new earth, ding, you've made a very important connection. That is the promise. Man, as we see, was made in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, uh, able to, you know, to obey, able to disobey. Uh, but once he's confirmed in that holiness, he will only be able to obey. Now, we'll discuss that later. Just hold on to that comment now. But the point is, he's being promised eternal life being confirmed in holiness and that relationship uh, with God, uh, something that we see eventually happening uh, at the end, you know, with, with when, when Jesus returns. There's also another term that is often used for this covenant that's made with Adam. It's not used in this question, but will be used in the catechism very soon. Does anybody know what it's also sometimes called? It is, in fact, the Adamic covenant. Thank you. I was not thinking of that, but that is, in fact... Um, no, no, that's exactly right. People talk about the Adamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and so on. Um, so uh, if, if I can set that aside as to who was made with as, as the person who stood, I'm looking more at a, a term that is often used in regard to the conditions of this. Anybody ever heard of that? The Covenant of Works. works. There we go. Thanks. I figured you guys knew that. <laughs> now, here's where we get ourselves into a little bit of trouble because there's misunderstanding that goes around this. The covenant of works, the word works here, a reference to the fact that Adam is doing something, obeying, okay? But it begins to introduce this idea, possibly, that man has a hold on God. If he just simply obeys, God is then obligated, right? God owes Adam something. You see how that could could go somewhere? And I want to be careful that we, that we, that we resist that kind of thinking. Uh, some years ago, there was a bit of a debate between two great Reformed theologians. Uh, one is Meredith Klein, uh, who um, 
uh, taught for many, many years at Westminster, California, Westminster Seminary in California in Escondido. The other one was John Murray, who taught for many, many years in Westminster and the Philadelphia campus. Both good men. And they, they both um, got into, well, Klein was maybe the next generation. So he was sort of responding to Murray. And Murray never really had a chance to respond to him because he died in 75. So uh, people kind of took up the, uh, the torch and ran with it. And that's sometimes a little dangerous. There was some issue with what the word works means. And here's where I'm going with that. I'm trying to see if I can summarize all this and not spend all too much time on it. In one sense, uh, we talk about uh, God relating to mankind. Anytime you see in scripture, and God relates to mankind through covenant, and that's what I'm trying to establish here. And that becomes the defining relationship all throughout scripture. That's why covenants are absolutely essential. But all covenants, all relationships that man has with, uh, that God has with man is God condescending to mankind. By, by condescending, I don't mean patronizing, you know, that I'm talking about God uh, lowers himself to the level of being able to relate to the creature. The creator is so vastly beyond. So he speaks to us in language, in human language, because he couldn't possibly, uh, we could not possibly understand him any other way, that kind of thing. So God, all throughout his relationships to us is always a condescension to our finitude, to our creatureliness. And that's the case even here. The very act of a covenant is condescension. What I mean by that is if you look at the way God uh, expects us to do, well, if you have kids, this, is, this makes it a whole lot easier. Um, maybe you were one, I'm not commenting on pract- uh, parenting practices and so on. Some folks believe this is uh, not good, and other folks think it's viable, but okay, so your kids do their chores, and so you, you pay them for it, right? You perhaps have heard of parents, maybe you've done that. You know, you give them a little something. Um, is that something that they earned? Well, in a sense, you might say, yeah, they did something and then they got paid for it. But did you owe them that? Is the real question, I see. Yeah. Anybody who's been a parent long enough says no. Why? Because they were supposed to do that regardless, right? You ask them to do something, they are to obey regardless. The fact that you choose to reward them is an act of grace. It's condescension. It's you choosing to do so because you're kind. So yesterday I bring in my dog and... Um, he comes in, I call him to come in, and when he comes in, he, when, when I call him, he simply should come. And then I decide I'm going to give him a treat, and I tell him to go ahead and take a, to sit. I will not give him the treat until he sits. He sits, I give him the treat. Got it all worked out. But he needed to do that regardless. The giving of the treat in one sense is not something that he really earned. I simply have laid out a condition upon which he will receive the treat. You see, now that, that's an analog, but it gives you an idea, and maybe the, the parenting one might be better too, but it gives us an idea that God is condescending to give us eternal life. And John Murray uh, wrote a little book that basically was saying, oh, and I, I should point out one thing before, can we just pause there one moment? The covenant of life made with Adam, as we've already pointed out, as Phil pointed out, that good Christian Reformed Church uh, training, the Adamic Covenant. So, no, 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 you, you were quite correct. But there's another covenant in Scripture 
that does have one, one word in the covenant of? Grace, yes. And we won't get into this here either, but who's the covenant of grace made, in, made with? Yeah, with Jesus. This is going to be very important, that connection between the two. Now, the covenant of grace is a fulfillment of this covenant. A lot of folks think that when Adam failed, and we're going to, you know, we know that Adam fails the test in Genesis chapter 3. This is not abrogated. This is not done away with. In fact, in a moment, you might already want to turn there. We're going to turn to uh, Romans chapter 5. And Paul goes out of his way to sit there and say, how do we know that the covenant of works is still ongoing, the Adamic covenant? Because people are dying. Dying is the condition of the covenant of works. You know, if you disobey, and not the condition, I'm sorry, is the uh, penalty of the covenant of works. If you disobey, you die. And he's saying, people are dying ever since the first man. So the covenant of works is still in place. God makes a second covenant, a covenant of grace, in which Jesus fulfills the covenant of works. I want you to get that. It's a very important concept. What Jesus does is fulfill the covenant of works. Why is it called the covenant of grace? Because you couldn't fulfill this on your own. He graciously does it for us and gives us the result of Jesus' obedience. But it's this covenant that Jesus fulfills. Does that make sense? And just for clarification, um, that covenant of grace, as, uh, as we will see, is administered differently depending on the, on the age. And it has to do with, with uh, uh, basically, Paul puts it this way, uh, it, uh, uh, in Galatians, he basically says it has to do with the maturity of God's people. Just like when you deal with your children, you want them to develop along a certain path, but how you develop them is different. You don't treat your toddler the same way you treat your seven-year-old, the same way that you treat your 13-year-old, the same way you treat your 16-year-old. The goals are still the same. You want them to become godly men and women, right? And all that that entails. But you use different techniques and different uh, approaches because of where they are. Same thing that happens in the old covenant and in the new covenant. Sometimes also known as the old testament, just because it's an old word. And the new testament. So when we talk about the Old Covenant, it's not a reference to the covenant of works. The Old Covenant, the New Covenant, when you hear that kind of language being used, are still part of the covenant of grace. Does that make sense? Yeah? Any questions about that? It's kind of like if we, we want to nail this down, this concept, because this is going to be uh, absolutely key then for everything. The covenant of grace that God makes after the covenant of works is that of Christ fulfilling the covenant of works. It has those components of the old and new covenant. And within the old, you get the Adamic and the Noahic and the Mosaic and the Davidic covenant. They're all the same covenant, just God reveals more details about how he's going to do things. 
Okay, is that all clear? So good, so far, so good. All right. So this uh, enters then into what we've been talking about: this issue of uh, of uh, uh, condescension, where God um, speaks to us in language we can understand. The whole idea of the covenant is put in terms that we can understand. And when he enters into the, let's see, I got some stuff here. Do we need to read that? Uh, now let's go ahead and skip it for now. When we look at the covenant, what we're really looking at that is, yes, God sets these conditions, but they're gracious conditions. And again, I don't want you to think that when I say that they're gracious, that we're talking about the covenant of grace. It's a separate covenant as a term. But it's still gracious in the sense that God never owed us anything, right? Uh, in fact, uh, this is the passage I'm looking for. just got to find it. I thought I had it here. Oh, yeah, Luke 17.10. Would somebody look up Luke 17.10? In a moment, we're going to get back to that Romans 5. But if somebody will read Luke 17.10. And if you've got it, go ahead and please read it. Okay, thank you, Jared. So there you have it. In the end, God simply says, this is Jesus saying, you know, don't go around saying, look at what I did, Lord, you owe me anything. He's saying, in the end, we're just unprofitable servants, unworthy servants, I think your translation uh, said. Um, you know, you, all you've done is what was required of you. So God is being gracious when he enters into this relationship with us uh, here. But he's still setting a condition for us, and if Adam does fulfill that condition, he gets the reward. It's a gracious thing. By the way, once you understand that concept, it also explains in the New Testament all the talk about rewards in heaven. And you sit there and say, well, how can I be rewarded if my salvation is by grace, and how can... You know, I'd be just, you know, and then you realize that your rewards are gracious as well. Uh, do you do good things after you are saved? Yes, you've been enabled. You were unable to do them before you're saved. The Holy Spirit enables you. He changes you. Remember, there's this idea of regeneration. We become new creation in Christ. I'm now able to obey, and when I obey, it's only because the Spirit enables me to, and yet I still get rewarded for them. That's the, kind, the same principle that we see. God is always being gracious. So just once we get that in our mind, now things begin to all fall into place and we can really make sense of all these different parts of Scripture that sometimes people see as antithetical or dichotomous. All right. With that said, let's move on to the, uh, the last uh, really big thing that we want to look at. There is something minor uh, that we've already talked about before here that I'm going to skip, and that is the fact that this question, as we come to it in the Catechism, it uh, doesn't actually use the word Adam, but is referring to Adam. And, and it makes it very clear, just like Jesus did, that Adam was an historical person. And we have already dealt with that when we talked about creation. So I'm just going to mention it here in passing, that this question uh, does, in one sense, teach us the historical uh, 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 truth, the historical reality of Adam. And, and as we talked about when we did uh, the section on creation, that has come under attack as of late, where people have seen Adam as simply metaphorical, as just a literary construct of humanity and God entering into a relationship with the human race as a whole. And there's been all sorts of things about evolution. And at some point, you know, if we want to try to uh, uh, even try to pretend that Genesis is somewhat historical, uh, some of the, the theologians who hold to this idea of theistic evolution will say that Adam took a couple of hominids and, and breathed life into them and so on and breathed his image into them. The problem is that the passage in Genesis 2 doesn't say, in fact, we're going to look at it in, um, in the sermon today, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. 
It doesn't say that he breathed into Adam and Eve. It only says Adam. So you see, all these theistic evolution things all, in some sense, do violence to the text. You just have to ignore something that's in the biblical text or add to it. No, no, it's very, very clear. Like I said, we we got into that in detail when we did the creation part. It's very clear that Adam was a real human being just like you and me in in, in that regard. Um, You know, he was not a hominid. He did not, was not a knuckle dragger, um, you know, any of those kind of things. All right, but let's get into the last and really most important aspect. Once we've got this idea of covenant, the next thing we want to enter into this idea of representation or covenant headship. Sometimes you've heard of the federal covenant or a covenant head. All those are talking about the same thing. Um, Our federal government, right, we use that term federal. We talk about a federal covenant. Uh, That comes from the Latin word, word can be confused if you're not careful with another word. Fetus can be confused with fetus from a child. They're not the same thing. But this just simply means head. Okay? It's, it's the head. In Greek, there's a word for that. It's kephale um, with a C. C-E-P-H-A-L-E. Kephale. But uh, in, in Latin, the word became that which is the root of our word for federal. So when we talk about the federal head, we're really kind of saying the same thing twice. The head of the head, you know, the head head. Uh, the federal head, the one who represents. And it's not just, you know, head as in a leader, as in a tribe, and you've got the chieftain. It's a person who represents the others. Hence, in our, our uh, uh, government, uh, we talk about the federal government, and it's a government where, uh, believe it or not, we, despite what they're telling you, and it is done purposely, we are not a democracy. Uh, democracies all become, this is little, this is for free, you're going to get this. Democracies all lead to tyranny every last time, and that's why uh, you see people pushing for democracy. What? Some other time we'll talk about that. Uh, come to Men's Grill Night. Ladies, come to Men's Grill Night. <laughs> well, we can discuss it or something. But um, it's, why, uh, it's why the founders made us a republic. So anyway, the federal head, who represents us? And you see the concept that we have in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, in the, um, in the old, see, I'm doing it right there. In the original covenant of life uh, is that Adam represents all the human race. And the, co- and the concept we have in the covenant of grace is that Jesus represents the new human race. So you have the original human race represented by Adam and you have a new race represented by Jesus. So let's take a look uh, at Romans chapter 5. I think I left my Bible up here. We'll start probably at verse 11. Um, The idea then of this representation is that what this person does counts for everybody whom he represents. Okay, so if Adam obeys, everyone that he represents, the whole human race, is then counted as having obeyed. If Adam disobeys, then all the people he represents are counted as having disobeyed. If Jesus obeys, all those under him also are counted as obedient. You you see how that point works. Now, 
Let's, let's read it first and then we'll comment. Romans chapter 5. There's a lot that can be said here, but we'll have to limit ourselves. And I think we'll just start in verse 11, but I want to, I'm sorry, verse 12. How about if somebody reads just 12 through 14? All right, let's, let's hold there. He starts talking about just as sin came into the world through one man who represented, and then he, he kind of just does this little sign thing, and he says, oh, yeah, that's because death came through sin, and, and death has been around since that moment. And notice what he's saying, and he says, and death has been around since that moment, even if people don't sin exactly like Adam. In other words, you didn't have to do the exact same sin. You didn't have to sit there and say, well, I, I haven't eaten of that tree. I may have done other things, but I didn't eat of that tree. And he talks about sin has reigned even when there was no law given to Moses. And that's because some of the people are saying, well, until you have the Mosaic law given in Mount Sinai, then there is no law. And of course, elsewhere, Paul argues, yes, the law was written on men's hearts. They were told what they were, what were to do. And so in saying, even though uh, the law wasn't given to Moses, there was death from the time of Adam to Moses. So he's arguing, it shows you that there was a law in place. Because there is no sin if there's no law. But we're seeing death, which is the consequence of sin from Adam to Moses. So clearly there was some law from that time even before the giving of the Mosaic law, the law written on our hearts. At the very least, that's what he's, he's kind of arguing the bare minimum here. And he's trying to show, that shows, folks, that all of us are under Adam. That's where he's going with all this. We're all under Adam because we're all suffering the penalty of that first covenant that was made with Adam. So Paul just, you know, he does this little aside, but that's what he's trying to establish. And once he's reminded everybody that this covenant of works is still in effect because people are dying, even when they didn't have the Mosaic law, they're still dying. So that covenant is in place. He then goes on in 15 and following. So somebody will read 15 through... um, 15 through 21. We won't be able to get into all the details. We'll just hit the highlights, but 15 through 21. All right. Thank you, Margaret Ann. Um, What we see then in this passage very clearly is Paul putting Adam and Christ as the federal heads and saying Adam's disobedience brought the, the negative aspects of the covenant on every last person who matter represents. Because he did not obey, he disobeyed, the curse of the covenant, which was death, then passes on to each and every one of those whom he represents. But because Jesus obeys, then all those who are under him, graciously, he adds, graciously receive the benefit, which is life, the promise that had been made to Adam. Uh, is now given to all those under Christ. And can you see that, that idea there? It's very clear. He's saying, by the one man's disobedience, all fell and all suffered death. By the one man's obedience, all then are justified, justified being made right with God. Right. Now, um, uh, in the translation that you were using, Phil, which I don't think was the ESV, uh, it used the word imputed. And it's a word that, uh, again, doesn't get much use in 
in, in general, we talk about imputation. The ESV count, uh, used the word count, counted that as, you know. Um, so, uh, uh, for example, in verse 13, uh, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Sin is not imputed where there is no law. It's this idea of reckoning or counting somebody as something even though they themselves did not do it. So that is the general principle that's throughout all the covenant language that you find in the Bible. Uh, you have been represented by Adam. His failure gets imputed to you. The moment that you are conceived, Psalm 51.5 says that you are, from the moment of conception, already conceived as a sinner. It's a very, very clear passage. How? Because you did something wrong? Clearly, uh, when, at the moment of conception where you have no ability to do things yet, no, you have not actually done an actual transgression. But you're already a sinner. You already are counted. Accounted, you might say. Sinful. From that very moment. Likewise, when you come under Christ, you haven't obeyed perfectly like he did. But that perfect obedience is imputed to you. That's the language that we use, is counted to you, as if it were yours, right? Now, what's the first thing you think of when you hear that? What's the first thing you hear people say? If anybody has kids, it's not fair. Okay, it's not fair. So let's see if we can deal with that. And, but first, let me just ask the question. Is this idea of representation, is there any comments or questions about that? That the covenant is built on the principle of representation, of headship. Okay, I think the Romans 5 passage is absolutely clear in trying to show who the two heads are. But the question, the objection even, comes up, that's not fair. And here's why you say it's not fair. Because you're saying, I didn't get my chance. Maybe if I had been in the garden, I would have stood the test. And we wouldn't have to go through all this. I wouldn't have this kind of boss. Or I wouldn't be married to this kind of person. Or you know, whatever it is that we want to complain about. Or maybe the better way is, they would not have to deal with me. <laughs> right? Okay. The issue there is the presumption that you would have done better. Now, we don't seem to have that presumption or that problem at all when it comes to Jesus. When it comes to Jesus, we're more than happy to accept his perfect representation because we know we can't do it any better. But let's talk about Adam. Uh, again, I mentioned our federal uh, government that we have, our republic. When you choose a representative, what is that person supposed to do? Yeah, and how so? What are, they, what are they supposed to actually do that represents you? Vote as you would vote. Yes, advocate, I think I heard, and so on. But essentially, the idea is, in a pure democracy, if this were a democracy, we'd all gather here in the, you know, the town square, and we would all put a, an issue up, and we would all vote on it, right? That kind of thing. Since we can't all do that, we can't gather 350 million people all together all the time to vote. We have representatives. And the idea is that that representative represents you and votes just like you would vote if you were there, right? What's the problem? They don't do that. Why? Because they're imperfect, sinful people. They do not do that. However, that is the idea. 
Adam is our representative. Who picked him? God. God picked the perfect representative. He put the person in place that he knew would do exactly what you would have done in the garden. Okay? So before we sit there and say it's not fair, just understand the idea of representation, God's universe. That's how he decided to do it. He decided to relate to us not all at once, but through representation. By the way, little side note, he chose to, re- to relate to the angels all at once. And each one stood their own probation. And those who passed were confirmed that they have no way of, of uh, rebelling now. And those who rebelled, so-called demons, he confirmed in their unholiness. No chance for them to be redeemed either. Very, very different um, setup that God takes there. But with mankind, he chose this principle of representation. This is, so this is what we're saying. It's the first act of providence that we see here in terms of relationship with mankind. God chooses to relate to us through this idea of representation. And it is fair. And I'll, I'll finish by just saying this. When we talk about what Adam himself was being asked to do, talking about fairness, well, God knew that there was going to be a fall. God even ordained a fall, so he was never given a chance. No, one of the things we want to recognize is that we have real free will, and God did not stack the deck. God did everything possible, actually, so that Adam could obey. Let's take a look at those, and with this we're going to end. First of all, uh, as, as uh, we see in the catechism itself, when we looked at the creation of man, it said that man was created in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. We unpacked that before. He truly could understand everything. He truly had been set apart to obedience. He, uh, he was righteous and able to obey. Remember, we saw that as the prophet, priest, and king paradigm that we see all throughout Scripture. So he clearly was created with the ability to do what he required. As Ecclesiastes 729 says, God made man upright. Adam had the moral ability to obey. So God did not make him an automaton that had to uh, act in a particular way. He fully had the ability to obey. That's one. Uh, uh, Oh, and and I'll just simply uh, uh, say that even though Satan is the tempter, Satan does not make Adam obey uh, or, or disobey. Okay. Adam had the ability and the free will to choose and to do what he wanted to do. Um, Paul's later able to say that, um, uh, that Adam was not deceived, 1 Timothy 2.14. Okay, uh, let's move on. What else do we want to say here? Uh, second, we see that God gives him every possible good thing so that he does not disobey. If you put all the good things of the world off in a corner and say, you can't have them, I'm just going to give you a few things. You're tempting him. No, I want that. I, I need that. But he gives them everything. The whole of the universe is his. He has everything that he can enjoy. It tells us that all that he made was very good. So he's given him every possible inducement to obedience. The only thing he said is don't eat of this tree. But it wasn't the only tree with fruit. It wasn't like he said, you know, all you got is vegetables, cauliflower and, you know, and, and green beans for the rest of your life. No oranges, no mangoes. Can you imagine? No, no, no. Everything is for him. So he's been given everything other than this one thing. 
So he's given him all sorts of reasons to obey. And then the last thing he does is he makes it absolutely clear what would happen if he does disobey, and he gives him a rather strong disincentive upon the pain of death. So that Adam can't sit there and say, but I had no idea, I didn't, you know, it wasn't that big a deal. He makes it very, very clear. I give you the ability, I give you all sorts of reasons why you should obey, you should be satisfied with all this, but even if you think you might want this one thing, let me make it so absolutely onerous. I mean, your whole world's gonna end. So you can see God is being immensely fair here. Again, it's part of his condescension. He could have made life extremely, we would say, cruel or extremely uh, limited uh, and, and, and it still would have been fine because he's God. But he's chosen to give us all these things, the desires of our hearts and everything that we needed and we still chose to disobey. The reason I take so much pains to point that out is that it becomes so easy to feel sorry for ourselves and so easy to become, come up with excuses. And when we realize just how good Adam has it, we begin to really realize the depth of sin. Again, if you've got kids, it helps. Because when you see a kid disobey you and you realize that the only thing driving that disobedience is malevolence, I'm sorry to tell you, but that's what it is. You know, many kids, It's not that, I mean, you've given them everything. They have cookies and they have toys and they have this and that. And they still choose to look you in the face and say, no. What? It just shows you the depth of our depravity and where we are. Now, God can do all that. So what I'm trying to show you is that it wasn't like God put us in a narrow box and, you know, this is what life is like. I guess I have to deal with it. I'm going to try to be good. No, he had given us everything. Okay, let's go ahead and stop there. There's a whole lot more that uh, we could be said about covenants. Any um, questions or comments before we, we conclude? Yeah, I would say not only did he know, but because it was part of his plan, he laid it all out. But even in the laying it all, of, all out, he laid it all out so that the stack was dac- stacked in our favor. I mean, supremely in our favor. Uh, it really just shows how depraved we had to be to choose to use our free will to grab the one thing that we only grabbed because he told us not to. Do you understand? It's that I want it because I can't have it. Even though I have everything else, right? So I don't know if that helps. But yeah, I think it's absolutely accurate to say that God ordained it. Any other questions or comments? Yeah, um, if you come from a Baptistic background, um, I'm going to answer this without defending it, but I'm happy to give a fuller answer because there is a, a fuller answer. If you come from a Baptistic background where your salvation depends on what you do, right? You know, if you're baptized in, in the Baptistic uh, church world, Baptism is about you declaring your choice for God. And that flows out, you know, and it's all about my, you know, my choice and so on. The reason that we baptize children is because we recognize that um, salvation does not depend on us. It's our response to what God has already done. And God is free to save anyone and everyone. That doesn't mean that the child is saved at the moment of baptism. I'm not saying that. But the idea behind it then is that um, in the Baptistic way of thinking, uh, they've had to introduce two plans of salvation. Now, they'll never say that, but that's what you have. You have a plan of salvation where you're a sinner, you deserve condemnation. If you hear the gospel and reject it, you're going to hell. If you hear the gospel and you accept it, you're saved. And the idea is what do you do with people who are too young, children, babies, babies that, are, that die at childbirth, 
uh, or, or people who are mentally disabled and, and so on. So you come up with a plan B and you say, well, they're automatically saved. And then where do we cut out? Some people say the age of accountability, age of 12 or whatever. Try finding that in scripture. You will not find it anywhere. Oh, yes, because um, um, uh, David, when his child dies, says that the, the child is now with God. So there's the proof. Uh, the child is with God. Yes, he said that. But that does not prove that there's some sort of automatic... Because how do you, again, how do you deal with Psalm 51.5 and others that talk about, from the very moment of conception, I'm sinful. Does God just wave that away? In the Reformed view, it's one plan of salvation. God saves whom he wants to save. And your response, as a person who's able to think and has cognitive ability and so on, uh, is what we see when, when we choose Christ. But our choosing is a response to what God has already done. So one of the beautiful things about covenant theology, which we don't have time to get into here, is this idea that the promise is to you and to your children. That's not just what God says in Genesis chapter 17 when he makes the covenant with Abraham, but Peter repeats it again in Acts chapter 2, verse 39. The promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off. He's talking to Jews and he's telling them it's not just for the Israelites anymore. It's not even including the far off Gentiles. But it's this idea of being a covenant child. You are brought into the covenant. God ordinarily works through, um, through covenant families. Does that mean that every child who's born into a covenant family is saved? No. They grow up. They have to be able to demonstrate, demonstrate what God has already done in them. And there are some who grow up who never demonstrate that. God chose for whatever reason not to regenerate them and bring them to himself. They never make professions of faith and they actively reject the faith or just walk away quietly or whatever. But for the most part, God has chosen because you're raised in a Christian home and you have all those inducements and so on, that, you know, you, you, you respond to the gospel. But that response is because of what God did. So it's always that idea of who is the initiator. And in the Baptistic worldview, if you look at the order of salvation, that's why I said it's a long, the order of salvation, I make a decision for God, then he regenerates me. And in the Reformed view, the biblical view, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people don't do anything. God regenerates, and because he regenerates, now I respond with faith and obedience. That's what we see with the child when he comes to a certain age and he says something. So when a person comes to me and, um, and says, uh, you know, my child has died or something like that, what comfort can I give them? If they are believers, I can ask and I can say, has that child done anything to have rejected the covenant, to have rejected the relationship with God? We have no evidence. So we can presume that this is a child, you know, who is... Uh, a child of, uh, of the covenant who is, a, who is saved. Um, what do you do with somebody who's heavily mentally handicapped or whatever the term is today, disabled or, you know, whatever? Um, you know, I've, I've known folks who I am convinced are believers but would not be able to articulate in ways that we would think are valid, you know, so that you can sign a little card and say, here's the day in which I gave my life to Christ, right? So does that help? Okay, we're going to leave it there. There's a whole lot more that can be said, but we do need to quit. Let me go ahead and pray a very quick prayer uh, since i got to suit up here. Father, thank you for your covenant. Thank you for condescending to our weakness. Thank you for entering into a relationship with us that is gracious. Even the covenant of life and works is, in this one sense, gracious. You owed us nothing. And then we took all the good things that um, you gave us and we spit on them and we said we don't need them because we want to be God and we want to control. And that's really what drove us to disobey. And we would, each and every one of us here, done exactly the same as Adam. 
we would have said, we're now satisfied with what you give us because we still want to be in total control. We want to be you, O oh God. And yet, Father, in your grace and in your love, you didn't sit there and say, okay, you get what you deserve. Instead, you took upon yourself the penalty of our disobedience and you carried on your shoulders, quite literally in the person of Jesus, um, you carried upon your shoulders the weight of, of fulfilling that covenant. And because of that, we are now a blessed people. We thank you, Father, for that. Um, we pray that we would um, not take that for granted as we enter into our worship service here. May that fuel our praise as we uh, uh, revel in who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.